Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Melik Ordabasi to talk about her new book, The Undiscovered Country, Text Translation and Modernity in the Work of Yanagita Kunio. This came out in 2014, just this year, with Harvard University Asia Center. Melik was really, really generous and fabulous um, in that, among other things, she organized this Skype conversation from Japan. So I'm really grateful to her for doing that, among other things. So I loved this book. I'll just put it right out there. And one of the reasons that I love this book is that it simultaneously helps sort of open up and helps us have a window into the work of a really, really fascinating scholar and writer, and also meaningfully, substantively, organically, and in a way that speaks to the theoretical field, engages with translation studies, histories of practices of translation. So this is a book that doesn't just, its engagement with translation studies is very much part of the fabric of the entire book, and it does so in a way that I think really, really works. So this is a book that I will now be suggesting to friends and colleagues when they ask for a book on translation and or translation relating to East Asia. Um, it's a book that if you're interested in translation studies and histories of and practices of translation will speak to you, even if you don't imagine yourself to be fundamentally interested in Japanese literature, or the history of modern Japan. But it is also a book that will make you interested in the history of modern Japanese literature if you're not already. So it focuses on this super fascinating figure, Yanagita Kunio, and I'll keep this very brief because you'll hear a lot more about him in the conversation to come. But it looks at a range of different kinds of works and different kinds of materials that he produced as a way of opening up his work, not as a folklorist um, necessarily or only, which is how he's been interpreted, but as a translator and sort of thinking through what that might mean, what that could mean, both for how we understand translation and for how we understand him. There are also, as you will hear toward the end of the conversation, snails involved. So I'll just drop that in there. You can wait for it. Um, that'll come up later on. But um, basically, it's, it's a really fascinating book. It's also really um, a pleasure to read, and it'll introduce you to a number of different kinds of works that range from um, works on dialect to uh, children's literature, like a history of fire. Okay, so I'll leave that there, and I'll just say it was really a pleasure to talk with Malik about it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Melik Ordabasi about her new book, The Undiscovered Country, Text, Translation, and Modernity in the Work of Yanagita Kunio. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Melik. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for writing an amazing book, and thank you for negotiating the time difference between Vancouver and Japan. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, yeah. Hi, Carla. Um, long time no see. And uh, thanks for thinking of me and for inviting me on your show. Of course. So, Melik, could you start us off, as is traditional for the program, by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background? And specifically, how did you come to work on the history of Japanese literature? Mm. Well, um, the good thing about my name in North America is that nobody can recognize it, but it's actually a Turkish name. Um, however, most people think that I have Japanese heritage, which is not the case. Um, uh, I am a trained comparatist um, with a specialization in Japanese. I also do German and, well, obviously English. Um but as far as the, the Japan angle, the way I came to it um, is sort of a function of history, actually. I grew up um, during the 80s, which, um, you know, as anyone familiar with Japanese um, history will know, economic history certainly, um, was that this was during the bubble. And um, Japan was, you know, buying up properties all over the world. I happened to be going to high school in Australia, 
<laughs> which, yeah, um, that's another long story that I don't have to go into. But uh, um, in any case, you know, so here I am entering grade eight in 1983. Um, and I'm presented with the option of doing Japanese. My other options are French, Italian and German. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, boring. Um, and the, you know, the reason why Japanese was on the curriculum for eighth graders at my high school, um, is of course, you know, well, fear, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the Australians, um, you know, if, if you know anything about Australia, the Japanese at this point had bought up the entire Gold Coast, which is sort of a, um, a surfer's paradise area. And in fact, that's what it's called. And um, the Australians were sort of trying to figure out how to negotiate with, um, you know, with this sort of implicit takeover. I mean, it's a little bit the way um, people are talking about China these days, right? Um, So anyway, one of the things that they wanted to do was to educate more um, Australians in Japanese um, culture and language. So there I was, of course, I I realized this all in retrospect. Um, All I knew about was um, Hello Kitty and uh, the Suzuki... um, uh, piano method, which I learned for years. And I thought, oh, Japanese, that's cool. Um, sure, I'll do that. And so years later, <laughs> uh, when I uh, entered university at Berkeley, my mom being, you know, mother is always right. And it's, it's true. She said, you know, you're good at languages, you should keep studying Japanese. And so I did. Um by the time, of course, I realized how difficult it was for a native English speaker, it was too late. I had invested too much time. And so I just kept going. But I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but I, I do really enjoy um, uh, studying something that has, well, I guess personally, nothing to do with me. Of course, it's part of me now, but at the time it wasn't. So that's that's a long story, but I think it's it's worth telling. No, that's great. I, I kind of feel the same way about Chinese. Like there's yeah. no there's no rational good reason I should be working right. on Chinese stuff. Right. And it kind of makes it more fun in a way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the book that we're talking about today explores the work of Yanagita Kunio, who is a yes. writer, a folk scholar, and much, much else. He was just a, he emerges from this book as a super crazy, awesome, wacky guy who you want to hang out with, but maybe not too much. Yeah. Um, yes, yes so, that's probably true. So we'll talk about him, I'm sure, um, over the course of the next hour. Now, it understands and evaluates and reevaluates and explores his work in the context of and in a frame of translation studies and uh, practices, histories, concepts of translation. So this mm. is a book that kind of is both about his work and it's also a really substantial, I think, very meaningful and helpful contribution to translation studies. And we'll talk about um, those aspects of the work in time. So mm. how did you come to this topic? What brought you to work on his work in particular? particular um, as a as a way to you know focus your study well um again i have um you know uh outside circumstances to thank for this um when i was a master's student at the university of washington i um uh, actually, just after I got my master's, I went to the Stanford Center, the Inter-University Center in Yokohama, um, for an intensive language program. I had never um, had the chance to go to Japan before this, and I realize that's rather, rather late, but for those of you who are late starters um, mm-hmm. um, in, in those terms, you know, take take heart, you know, <laughs> I still managed it, right? Even, um, yeah, I, I wanted to go my junior year, but couldn't afford it. So I ended up going after my master's. Anyway, the wonderful teachers at um, the IUC, um, you know, introduced me to him, um, mainly because I first um, had an interest in folklore, and was also a big fan of um, Studio Ghibli movies, Miyazaki Hayao. And um, I don't know, Carla, have you heard of those? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. So um, a big fan of those. I mean, as as probably most 23 year olds <laughs> in that area would be right. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the teachers uh, there um, uh, said, well, you know, if you're interested in that, you should be interested in this guy. 
And she introduced me to Tono Monogatari, which, as you um, can see in the book, is um, the topic of my first chapter. And um, it kind of went from there. And, you know, um, sort of got deeper and deeper as I came into contact with more of his stuff. Yes. So this book started as a dissertation, right? At yes, it did. University yeah. of Washington, right? Yes. So can you talk about that transformation from dissertation to book? Were there any major changes in the project, yeah. how you were thinking about it, um, et cetera? Yes. Well, um, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, this is a this is a um, topic I think that's um, worth discussing in some detail. Um, I know that as a graduate student myself, I, I you know I didn't know. I knew professors had all done this, but, you know, it wasn't something that anybody really talked about. Um, people didn't talk about their own experiences. We were just sort of given advice or not even given advice, right? Mm. And certainly once you get your PhD, nobody gives you um, much guidance on how to transform it into a book. Um, there, I mean, there are books out there and they're good, but, you know, basically you're, you're going to have to hassle it with it yourself. Um, my own story is um, rather circuitous. Um, I have spent a long time hanging out with um, Mr. Uh, Yanagida. And as he said, <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit too much time. Um, but um, I can say that the short story is that um, the book contains probably only about a third of the dissertation material. Um, the other thing is that um, anyone who wants to do the math can. I graduated with in 2001, and it is now to 2014. Okay. Um, so on the professional front, I will be completely honest that when I graduated, I was thoroughly sick of my dissertation and just didn't really want to work on it. That's pretty common. I think a lot of us have experienced right. that. Right. I do realize that not many of us have the luxury of doing something else, right? Um, I happen to be very lucky um, to be at Hamilton College for my first job. The emphasis there is on teaching rather than research, which is not to say that I, you know, didn't have to publish, but I think the pressure was not quite as intense. Um, the pressure on teaching was incredibly intense, but that's a different story. Um, anyway, I had wonderful colleagues, and um, I ended up doing a different major project, which um, some of you may be familiar with. I co-edited um, an anthology of translations on Meiji women writers with the wonderful uh, Rebecca Copeland. Mm -hmm. And who's actually the expert on this topic. But I wrote to her and said, hey, you know, there should be a book on this and there should be an anthology of the things you talk about in your book. And she said, sure, why don't you do it? And I said, well, you're the expert. Let's co-edit. So um, that's actually what uh, I spent a lot of my time doing. Um, what happened then is that I was... Um, fortunate enough to get a job out on the West Coast, um, which is where I am now, at Simon Fraser University um, in Vancouver. Um, I'm a West Coast girl, so, you know, that's kind of where I wanted to end up. And I had more time on my tenure clock um, than I normally would have, right? You know, so basically I was junior, but an advanced junior mm -hmm. assistant professor. So I had more years, in other words, to finish that book manuscript. So I was allowed to make it what I really wanted to. I would say my most intense work on the manuscript were um, the past four years, actually. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the readers of the manuscript. Um, one of them, and I can't honestly say who they are. I, I don't really even know. Um, and I haven't, you know, taken the time to find out. Um, one of them was a very exacting um, critic, I think it was the historian. <laughs> Sorry. We yeah. Tend to, yeah. We tend to. Jeez. But, but I will say they were, um, they were tough, um, but constructive comments. Um, I had to revise and resubmit. And I do think that that's actually what's made the book um, into what it is. Um, something that I'm pretty proud of. And, and also um, something that, theoretically does contribute in a new way, you know, so um, 
as I was saying to you before, Carla, um, in East Asian studies, we aren't exactly known for our contributions to critical theory. And um, as a comparatist, a trained person, uh, a trained comparative literature person, um, needless to say, I've had more than my share of critical theory. And I wanted to show that there is a lot to be done in East Asian, Asian studies with theory. Um, I've always been interested in translation. So that aspect of my um, thinking is what developed over these, you know, over this more than a decade, right? It, it developed to the point where I could understand Yanagida's work in the context of translation studies. That's something I would not have been able to do as a graduate student. And I think that's what allowed me to turn it into a unified book, um, you know, with a thread running through it um, that connects um, each and every chapter to various aspects of translation theory. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think there's more to be said about how to transform the man, uh, dissertation into the book. But I will say, one, it takes a long time. Two, it's extremely painful. Um, and three, uh, it does feel good when it's done. <laughs> so, well, Mentioning yeah. the contribution to translation studies actually brings us, I think, really nicely into the introduction. Thank you. So thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so uh, this is a book, as I've mentioned, about this guy, Yanagita. You talked about him um, in the introduction Mm -hmm. As uh, I think these are quotes, eccentric, or he's been um, described as an eccentric, dominating crackpot and a brilliant, <laughs> versatile iconoclast. He's yeah. also been understood um, largely as a folklorist over mm -hmm. um, the sort of course of scholarship about his work. And you're really right. refiguring him here um, as well as a translator in various senses and in various ways of understanding mm -hmm. that term um, in a way that's, I think, really interesting and important. So the study uses very close readings of Yanagita's texts to, and these are, um, now I'm using words from the book, to highlight the radical potential of translation as a method of resistance to the homogenizing national narrative of Japan's early and mid-20th century. So translation mm. as a method of resistance. And it mm. looks at the, as you call it, the materiality of his, his texts, the work that mm -hmm. they do in different ways, at different mm -hmm. levels, in relation to discourses of nation and modernity in Japan. So mm. I said all that just to kind of lay this out for for listeners, mm -hmm. that they have a sense of um, the larger um, scope of the work. So mm. the, the book does um, not only compare Yanagita's approach to that of a translator, but really um, consider him as a translator. Right, right. So given that it's such an important theme in the work, can you talk about, um, maybe to kind of start us off and bring us um, into the body of the book, yeah. what are some of the most important um, works of translators, <laughs> works of translation theory that you've found particularly useful mm. in um, drawing this out? And what are some of the ways as well that you feel the book is contributing to translation mm -hmm. studies? Mm -hmm. um, let me first say that um, yeah, thanks for, um, and actually this was uh, something you said uh, before we started recording that this was something you'd noticed about the book and that made me very happy. It's like, ah, okay, it came through. Good, good. I worked hard on that. Um, the I, I did want to say something before I talk about my theoretical influences, you know, in terms of translation studies. I did want to say that this is a very, um, certainly from the um, perspective of Japanese scholarship on him, a very odd perspective on Yanagida. Um, however, I've had, I, uh, because there has been such a large body of work um, in Japanese on him as a folklorist, essentially. There have been some people, um, for example, um, Sato Kenji at University of Tokyo, um, who've done different things with um, with his work. But certainly no one has said, hey, Yanagida is a translator, right? You know, they, they tend to compare him to... Um, you know, European, famous European uh, folklorists such as James George Fraser, the writer of The Golden Bough, and, you know, people like that. Mm -hmm. um, so by by saying this, first of all, I'm putting him in a totally different um, context um, from where he's usually been discussed. Mm -hmm. um, my, my rationale for this, um, it, there's certainly, as you 
can see in the chapters, um, and the book is very interdisciplinary, and if you deal with Yanagita, you have to be, um, because he's one of these jack-of-all-trades renaissance men, um, uh, writing, he writes in all kinds of genres, so, um, and scholars in the past have sort of been uh, frustrated in terms of, you know, if they try to approach him as a folklorist, they're, they're trying to say, well, then what's his method? Right. And they try to compare him, um, compare his work to field work um, or they say, oh, he's more of a literary type or no, he's just an unconventional historian. And um, and really, well, he doesn't seem to have a method at all. <laughs> right. So this was the this was the existing um, debate about him. And I'm like, well. I don't know. I see something there. I just have to try and figure out what it is. It's taken me years, but um, I found that translation, what he does um, in all of his texts is try to translate. Um, it, obviously, I'm not talking about standard, you know, um, you know, source target language kind of transit translation, but I am talking about the act of interpreting <laughs> language, um, landscape, and various other kinds of cultural texts, right? Um, as for my um, theoretical influences, um, the one who immediately comes to mind is Lawrence Venuti. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've, I've always enjoyed his work, and I did actually come into contact with him first in, in graduate school. And I think this is when the seed of this started to grow. Um, his... Um, introduction to um i believe it's the the translator's invisibility mm-hmm. um you, you have to correct me carla if i am misremembering the title um uh anyway where he talks about um he's basically suggesting that translators be more aggressive in their translations and um to resist the urge to uh, domesticate the text too much, to make the, the text too much, um, too familiar to readers of the target language. So in other words, if you're, if you're translating a foreign exotic text as a translator, you have a choice. You can either um, just make it incredibly palatable and easy to understand for your target audience and remove all foreign terms and, you know, maybe change the names of the characters and all this kind of thing. Or, and this is what Venuti recommends, um, you can uh, go against language a little bit and use the translation as an opportunity to to introduce new cultural elements and words and ideas into the target culture. Um, So he's very, he's speaking very much in a, um, contemporary kind of context and sort of bemoaning the the um, the low status of translation in North American culture, but I use his ideas to think about, huh? Yeah, you know, translation is kind of an odd thing. You know, on the one hand, um, you know, tr- the translator is the traitor, right? You know, the well-known saying, um, somebody who interprets for the other but makes it fit the self. Right. Um, on the other hand, the translator is also this um, very unusual conduit for new ideas. Right. So where, you know, it, you can't place him or her here or there. And that's precisely the sort of attitude and the sort of uneasiness I see in Yanagida's um, narrative stance in all of his texts. So regardless of genre, and um, if you take a look at my book, you'll see that he attempted folk, um, uh, folktale collection, uh, dialectology, travelogue, um, books about fieldwork method, and even texts for children. I mean, that doesn't even begin to, you know, describe all the different genres he wrote in. But regardless of um, 
the genre, he's always trying, he's always speaking to the reader and saying, I'm trying to explain this thing to you that no longer exists the way it used to, but let me try and interpret it for you so that you can make it your own and carry it for, forward into the future. Um, so, you know, that to me is very much the um, stance of a committed and passionate translator who has a love for what he is translating and wants his audience to know more about it. Great. And in fact, each chapter considers um, Yanagita as a kind of translator in different right. ways. So, so each chapter, as we now work through at least some of them, right? At least mm-hmm. some of them, it sort of frames him as a kind of figure and a kind of self as well. So, yes. and then you you describe this in the introduction: a poet, a travel writer, a scholar, a linguist, and a pedagogue, right? But again, in yes. each case, a translator. Yes. So, the first chapter looks at this fabulous text that you, I think, talked about a little bit earlier mm. when talking mm-hmm. about what brought you um, to this yes. topic. Yes, it and is the entry point for it, most studies. Yeah. It's fabulous. So this is Tono Monogatari by the Tales of Tono. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, can you maybe introduce sort of the basic um, shape and the basic nature of the text for listeners as a way to bring <laughs> yeah. us into yeah. like what's what's interesting about what he's doing with this text from the purpose right. uh, or from the perspective of the kind of translation you're talking about? Yeah, it, it is an earlier work, right? So written, uh, I mean, uh, self-published in 1910. Um, that should tell you there wasn't much of an audience for it at the time. Um, it is a slim volume of um, a number of short anecdotes, legends, tales that Yanagira heard from and rewrote. Um, He heard from, excuse me, a young native of Tono whom he met in Tokyo. Um, And Yanagira Yanagira then took down these tales that he heard from this young man who is actually in Tokyo to become a writer himself. And and uh, presented them as a numbered list of, you know, sort of random musings and, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I hesitate to call them aphorisms because they're not. But they're very short texts. Um, for example, um, one day so-and-so was walking through the forest um, while hunting and met a strange woman. Um it turned out the strange woman was so-and-so who had left the village many years earlier. I mean, it's, it's very sort of hearsay what people in the village kind of tell each other about the area and their history and this sort of thing. It, I wouldn't call it a conventional folktale collection um, by any means, but it is sort of in that direction. Great. Now, you talk about this text um, as a, it, it's been understood, as you put it um, in this chapter of the book, as a kind of foundational folk studies text. Right, right. And you describe it as an experiment in testing the limits of the literary um, mm. for Yanagita by including folklore in the literary canon. Mm-hmm. Your reading of this is really, really fascinating for me um, in that you're paying really special attention to the grammar and the style of the text mm-hmm. and, looking at the, and in looking at the work that it's doing, sort of you know, trying to understand the kind of translation that was being affected here. Mm-hmm. So he chooses to write in a non-vernacular, as you put it, f- purposely foreignizing classical style. Right. He also doesn't use the first-person language. He doesn't use the I that was so popular in this period mm-hmm. in works of contemporary realism. And often, as right. you put it, pronouns are even omitted. And this is actually a really important decision. And it sort of situates yeah. him within this um, comparison with or juxtaposition with the work of Deleuze, um, interesting mm-hmm. assembly. Budgets. It's mm-hmm. really, really fascinating. So can you talk a, li- a little bit about that? What's going on with these grammatical decisions yeah. and what's significant about them in terms of the argument um, about his work that you're making in the chapter? Right. Um, I mean, be- even though it is sort of considered a foundational text and sort of an evidence of field work and um, folklore collection and that sort of thing, when you read it, it, it you know, it's, it's, well, kind of odd. Um, and, you know, most commentators have said it's important, but it's kind of weird. Like, we can't really figure out what what genre it is. And the people who have looked at it from a literary standpoint are just like, ah, yes, you know, um, this is, it's interesting, 
but we also don't really know what to do with it. Um, there's a couple of exceptions. For example, Mishima Yukio, um, the famous writer, you know, liked it. And um, but generally speaking, it was not accepted into the literary canon either then or now so much. Um, what basically what's unusual about what I do with the text is that I'm saying that a text that looks very traditional and sort of folksy, all right, based on oral narrative is actually a highly sophisticated modernist literary text. (laughs) And I use the particular grammar and style of um, that Yanagira chose in order to render the text um, to explain this. Um, what's really important that is that, like the Grimm brothers, Yanagira heavily rewrote what he heard from Sasaki, which is well known. This is, you know, this is not a secret by any means. But um, he he did make um, it sound old-fashioned, in a sense, by choosing a sort of neoclassical style, but um, he made a point of um, manipulating that style in order to make it sound present, active, um, in the moment, right? In other words, not long, long ago, which is usually the way um, legends and um, tales begin. Does does that help? Did I answer the question? You totally did. And um, this is, it's really, what's happening in this chapter also really nicely speaks to something you mentioned a little bit earlier in talking about, in general, one of the things that was so important about what he was doing, and that is speaking to the reader, right? Yes. And so you mentioned in this chapter sort of the importance of the kind of voice that he's creating in terms of replacing individual narrative agency with a voice that could speak for and to a collective assemblage. So the reader becomes part of the story. And this is something that's going to recur Mm -hmm. um, in different contexts and different kinds of texts later Mm -hmm. on. So this is only one kind of text that he worked on, though. And as you mentioned earlier, he wrote lots of different, what we would consider to be different genres of writing. And you explore them in turn, or you explore many of them in turn over the course of the book. Yeah, not all of them. (laughs) If you've taken a look at his collected works, I mean, there's there's a new one out, which is not yet complete. But the one that I was working from sort of half the time I was working on this book is uh, uh, over 35 volumes. So... (laughs) There's no way I can cover all of it. And thank you for not trying because from the perspective of a reader, it's actually, um, it it really helps the larger um, kind of conceptual and theoretical threads to come out when you do not try to write, you know, an 800 page. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So the next chapter looks at his work as a travel writer. Yeah. And you, uh, the way you put it here is that he's seeking as a travel writer to renew a faded genre and thereby to rewrite the contemporary national landscape. So again, to remind listeners, this is, this is also about an engagement with issues of nation um, and modernity and these, these larger um, scale yes. issues that are also yes. really important here. So the chapter pays special attention to his uh, work, the Kainan Shoki or the South Sea Notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is talking about the ways that he's addressing travel as a form of translation. So can you take us into this idea of travel as a form of translation and maybe Mm -hmm. um, use the South Sea notes to open that up a little bit? Sure. Um, I did just want to say something quickly about, you know, what you mentioned, the the interest in nation and modernity and so forth. Um, The, the reason for Yanagida's passion um, for translating is because he is concerned about the future of Japan um, and what he sees as the questionable direction in which modern modernization is taking it. Um, so one of the, the what he's trying to do with his so-called folklore studies um, is to translate things that he sees in Japan's cultural past um, into a contemporary context so that they can be of use in constructing the current cultural fabric. Um, So the travel log is actually a really good example of this because, I mean, you know, if you think of the, all of the travel logs that are on the market, I mean, even in, in English language, it's all about the traveler going through the landscape. Um, I mean, I remember being, 
uh, suckered in by uh, uh, under the Tuscan sun and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I'd like I'd like a, a mansion, a, you know, a house in Tuscany and grow rosemary by my front door. Yeah. You know, I mean, this <laughs> sort of um, vicarious participation in the visiting of exotic locales. I mean, that's usually what you think of as a travelogue. Um However, Yanagita does the exact opposite. So at a time when a lot of people were traveling to scholars, uh, Japanese scholars were traveling to Europe and bringing back accounts of, you know, what those crazy Westerners were up to. um, He's traveling the native landscape and saying, hey, there's all this stuff here that you people are missing. Um, this is also the period in which um, sort of mass, modern mass tourism takes off. So th- it's not quite true that the travelogue is dying, but it's sort of being replaced with the tourist guide, right? Um, and if any any tourist in Japan today will know that uh, Japanese tourists love tourist guides and rankings of hot springs and, you know, um, sort of here's what to see where and here's what to buy there and here's what to eat there and this sort of thing. So um, I don't know if Yanagiri was successful in turning the tide of, tour, uh, you know, the, the touristic uh, view of the landscape, but it is very um, telling that when he writes these travelogues, he is tr- looking at the landscape as he is standing there and is not talking about, oh, and I had some really good noodles, but instead is um, interpreting what he sees in terms of the cultural history of that place as he sees it. So um, uh, Notes on the South Seas is a, um, one of a sort of a trifecta of, um, uh, you know, it's not a tri- trilogy, trifecta, whatever, um, three well-known travelogues um, that are kind of considered as a set by Japanese um, scholars. Um, this particular one is about his trip to Okinawa, um, which, as um, well as some Americans know, um, is... Uh, a contested kind of place because the U.S. has um, a base there, which has caused a lot of um, uh, local strife. The Okinawans want it gone. Um, And this sort of manifestation, uh, this current manifestation of Okinawa within the national imaginary is actually just the end product of a long um, history of neglect and oppression um, by the Japanese mainland of the Okinawan people and the islands. Um, So Yanagida has often been read as one of the people who contributed to the marginalization of Okinawa. This may have, in fact, been the case, but it is certainly was not his intention. Um, And his text, um, South Sea Notes, attempts to excavate... um, interesting cultural um, historical layers of Okinawa uh, and its connection with the Japanese mainland in an attempt to, I think, and this is what I'm arguing in the chapter, um, increase the importance of Okinawa in the mind of the mainland Japanese reader. So he's not writing for Okinawan readers. He's trying to say, look, Okinawa is actually very important to us and look at these um, submerged and hidden layers of cultural history that we share. Mm-hmm. And he uses um, a variety of techniques, but um, one of the most interesting one is, ones is um, the uh, shared um, distribution of uh, particular kinds of um, uh, folk tales, legends, and um, religious rituals mm-hmm. um, that are shared. Um, between Okinawa and the mainland. And this is what he uses to um, increase 
the profile of Okinawa in the mainland Japanese imagination. Awesome. Thank you so much. And there's, um, just for listeners, um, I'll mark also the fact that um, one of the issues that's at stake or one of the issues that's really different about the way he is treating his travelogue and travel and the way some of his contemporaries are in this chapter are their treatments of mass transportation and the train. Mm -hmm. Others Mm -hmm. are writing about Mm -hmm. the train as if it's this like awesome, funky, groovy, amazing thing. And he's right. not so much. And right. he's also emphasizing the importance of discomfort um, yes. and the experience yes. of exile. So I think uh, right. it's part of a, a larger, I think, body mm-hmm. or a larger, um, not trend, but thread that some listeners may weave through contemporary uh, comparative literature and literary studies right now. There's a, there's yes. a huge interest in exile and sort of exile. Yes, yes. And um, I tried to you know, address that without getting on a bandwagon about it um, because I I don't like doing that. Um, But yeah, it's, it's an important, I do think it's, it it is um, an important threat. Thanks for picking that up Um, because let's see, how do I put this? Yeah. The, the, the idea of discomfort and, you know, that travel should be a difficult thing is of course a traditional one. Um, if you're familiar with, I mean, this is true in Chinese poetry as as well. Um, that you know, traveling is a hardship and it's not a touristic experience. Um, so that sort of marks Yanagida as seemingly old fashioned. But he, I argue that he's retooling this idea um, into something more like exile, using the idea that. You have to be aware of your own place in the world and be uncomfortable with it in order to really see what is around you. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Malik. So Mm. chapter three is also awesome, but because of time, what I'm going to do is Mm. just um, briefly summarize some of the things that are happening so that we can get to snails. Oh, because you were into the snails. I am super into the snails and the snails are chapter four. So chapter three um, looks at, um, chapter three is called Building a Discipline, Building National Identity, and it looks at Mm. scholarship as Mm. self-translation. So just to mark this for listeners, um, this where this chapter looks at two major methodological texts that he's publishing in the 1930s, um, translated as a study of popular oral transmission and methods for researching everyday home place life. So you talk in this chapter about the ways that these texts are actually challenging major academic conventions at the time, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also look really carefully at the way he's, I mean, literally, um, or so uh, perhaps literally for listeners who are more familiar with translation in terms of a negotiation among languages, right? Yes. And names. Yes. Um, so there's a, you talk a lot in this chapter about the importance of naming um, and his debates mm-hmm. over translations of Western names and Western labels for aspects right. of the study of human culture. So here, as you put it, just to kind of bring this back to um, scholarship as self-translation, um, you describe his idealization of the folk scholar here as a translator who must give voice to the unspoken cultural subtext within the mind. So scholarship is self-translation. And there's mm-hmm. also some really awesome diagrams in this part oh, of yeah. the book yeah. Um, yeah. that uh, sort of introduce us to his system of classification. Right. Which is not really a system. It's not. But, it's like yeah. things that from, I mean, I'm not going to like compare. I just did. So I'm just going to go with yeah. it. Like things go from, for it. Like, yeah. <laughs> very far away off look by look like flies, right? Things just broken yeah. by whatever. Um, like things sensed by natives, things heard by the ears, things seen by the eyes, it actually makes sense and mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. really pushes at least me as a reader out of the, my comfort zone of totally. what I think yeah. about when I think about classification. So it's really a yes. fascinating chapter that we could talk about for an hour, but we have <laughs> to get to the snails because I insist. So let's sure. get to the snails. Sure. I just want to say that this chapter, there's a reason why it's in the middle. It's not only a chronological thing. But um, I will say that I'm probably the most proud of this chapter. Oh, well, then why don't you? Well, then. No, no, it's cool. It's cool. I totally want to talk about the snails because they're funky. But um, no, I just I just want to um, add to what you said very briefly about the translation theory issue. This is where um, not only do I sort of look at those two, quote unquote, methodological texts as something else entirely, but I also do a layered reading of those texts. 
um, because they are similar to each other, because both of them try to discuss his so-called methodology. And by comparing them, you can actually see how um, he's trying to develop this narrative stance as a translator. Um, in other words, it's a very literary and translation studies method of reading a text rather than a historical or um, uh, anthropological way of doing it. So just if you're interested, yeah. And that's actually really important to mention because one of the things, um, one of the important ways that this book is engaged with translation studies is exactly in the way that you just said, it's showing us a way to read differently. Uh-huh. Right. It's not just saying he is a translator. Here's why. It's actually taking us into the text and training us or showing us possibilities for reading in a way that actually transforms how we understand a text, right. rather than right. considering it as a stable, you know, historically, um, st- uh, yeah, historically stable entity. So I think that's a really right. important contribution. Yeah, but the but the snails, but you the know, snails, but the yeah. snails. So let's get there. So, <laughs> so chapter four, dialect standard Japanese and translating everyday experience, takes us into the work of Yanagita as linguist. Yeah, and here, um, it, so it, it begins by giving us a kind of brief history of national language policy in Japan since right. the Meiji period. Right. So what's happening in the late nineteenth century is that Japan's trying to kind of boost its national image by standardizing written and spoken Japanese. And there's a lot of debate over reform in the decades leading up to World War II. And you take us into this context. Now, he is really, really different from, um, or his approach is really different in this context from what many of his peers are doing because he's not privileging writing, right? He's not Mm -hmm. privileging Mm -hmm. written discourse as the major space or locus for language reform. Instead, he's arguing for a really close connection between national language and local oral dialect. Mm-hmm. And here's where we come to the snails. So there's this amazing, or at least for me, amazing. Mm-hmm. I love, I love snails, but also I love what's happening here in this part of the book. Um, this this work um, that you translate is thoughts on the snail from yes. So yes. I'm just gonna throw you the ball. What's going on here? And, um, and and can you talk about the the importance of this work in the context of the argument that you're making in this part of the chapter? Okay. Of the book. Yeah. Well, I mean this was obviously new territory for me. I mean, I'm not a linguist. Um, I'll just say that right up front. And so I kind of had to learn this stuff from the ground up. Um, That said, it was really fun to do. Um, That said, of course, you know, Yanagita, as one might expect, is a very, um, is very unconventional as a linguist and dialectologist and, um, well, does things his own way. Uh, Kagyuko, or Thoughts on the Snail, um, was a... Again, I would call it an experimental work um, that drew on um, geographical linguistics um, from Europe, which um, is a very sort of uh, quantitative method of researching dialect where you sort of map um, different variants of a term geographically and then chart it and categorize different variants and try to figure out how it all hangs together. Um, so what he chose to do in, it, it's actually a compendium of essays, but the um, the most important one being this essay uh, on the snails, uh, the snail, <laughs> the term, in other words, the term snail. I mean, he's not actually talking about snails. He's talking about terms for the snail and the um, regional uh, variation um, surrounding the term. He could have picked, I don't know, something else, but, you know, snails were much cooler, I guess. <laughs> and um, So he, there is a, a crazy map included at in the book, sort yes, of as a fold out thing. On and page, can I... On page 156. Oh my God. And can I say that this was the most difficult thing <laughs> to do um, for my own book? Um, and it is, it only appears in the 1930 edition of Yanagida's book. Um, and I think it never appeared again because of the printing difficulties, <laughs> which is exactly what I had problems with. Um, anyway, so he's, it's this crazy map where he attempts to show all the different variants for the term snail, um, as they are used in various parts of Japan. Um, 
what emerges from this discussion is that um, when you look at the text and his discussion of these terms in context and how they're used and the history behind them and how they relate to each other, um, some of the theories of which, you know, most linguists would say he's crazy, but are nevertheless very interesting. Um, he, um, it's very clear that the map and its sort of quantitative scientific aspirations doesn't begin to um, describe in full the kind of picture of dialect and its importance and its variation and its creativity that Yanagida is actually trying to advocate. Um, what he's ultimately trying to say by this variation, and you know, there are a number of different theses out there, um, he is trying to argue that Japanese is one language. But um, just as importantly, he's trying to say that um, what is interesting about dialect and why it should be considered as an integral part of national language is that it incorporates and displays the creativity of people in uh, involved in the creation of their own language, right? Um, rather than using language um, that is handed to them from the top down as in um, sort of a national standardization policy, um, dialect is sort of a living example of how people engage with their own language and make it better all by themselves. Great. Awesome. Yeah. And um, for people or for listeners, rather, who are particularly interested in situating this within a larger historiography of ideas of language, um, yes. also compare what he's doing here to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? The yes. Sapir-Whorf stuff, yes. but, but show really yeah. interestingly the ways that he's emphasizing the history behind the patterns that emerge in that's right. that sapper and right. don't. So this is a, a right. really interesting chapter for listeners who are um, particularly drawn to sort of linguistic history and history of linguistics. Yeah, and I mean, I will say this chapter has, um, even though it has nothing to do with the new, not really anything to do with the new project I'm working on, it has deeply affected my thinking about language as a national um, phenomenon and how that connects with language as a literary phenomenon. Awesome. So, are, are yeah. There snails in the new project? No snails. Okay. Sorry. Maybe the next time we can talk about this. We, we, can... We, we can totally talk about it. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Okay. So as if um, the snails were not cool enough, then we come to even, in a way, in ways even cooler text in the next chapter, including a history of fire. And we'll get yeah. to that. So yeah. chapter five uh, is called Translating Folk Studies for Children, Education, and Disciplinary Politics Revisited. And it introduces Yanagita as a kind of pedagogue and someone who's really critiquing and um, speaking back to some dominant trends in education. So this right. chapter looks at his writing on education, which, he, as you put it here in this chapter, have been largely neglected by mm -hmm. previous scholars. And those writings are really include many different kinds of texts. So yes. folk yes. studies, right, that focus on mm -hmm. children and youth, educational works for children and right. for their teachers and for their parents, speeches and articles about yeah. education policy interviews um, yeah. about education policy so it's a really diverse kind of archive um, yeah. from which this um, these ideas emerge so it's also really interesting just from the perspective of sources right and how to sort of uh, put those into dialogue in productive ways which you do really well here well thank you as a his you know hearing that from a historian makes me feel oh, good that's right well you know that yeah. You you had me at snails, so I was oh, okay. You know, I'm good. good, but yes, but <laughs> it's, it's a re that's one of the really interesting things I think about the book for people who don't self-identify as you know uh, complete scholars or literature scholars is that there's really interesting ways of treating and thinking about um, the source archive here mm -hmm. that I think are are very informative for people who are self-identify as historians as I do. Awesome. That, that was part of my intention, awesome. actually. So, um, yeah, a lot of the work I had to do in this chapter was to put together a discourse on Yanagida's thoughts on education and pedagogy um, and how that connected with, you know, his more general um, 
you know, sort of drive to excavate um, Japanese cultural history of a certain type. Um, so, yeah, that's why there are all these diverse texts all in one place. But I do think I managed to show a good thread from, you know, his earliest career all the way to the end of his career, how this continued to be an interest for him. You know, what what becomes of young people, you know, how they should be educated and um, how his thoughts developed um, over the course of, you know, needless to say, a very um, uh, interesting period in Japanese history, right? So, um, but let me just focus on the last part of the sure. chapter, I guess, um, because, you know, by this time, I mean, you know, if Yanagira was cranky before, I mean, he's really cranky by this point um, after the war, um, but he's still gung-ho. I mean, you, you just can't keep this guy down. And... Um, once uh, he managed to, one of the interesting things is that he managed to escape censure post-war and in fact was looked to as someone who was not sullied by um, the, you know, the politics of the pre-war period. And I think there's a good reason for that. And so that despite his cultural conservatism and his sort of, you know, traditional um, uh, viewpoint, he is he's actually somebody who's advocating for different ways of thinking about the Japanese present and generally argues against sort of groupthink. Right. So um, needless to say, this put him in a pretty good place um, post-war and his opinion was sought on um, a reform of textbooks. So he did some work in that um, it didn't go mainstream, but nevertheless, he's been um you know, seen as somebody who was on the right side of the debate, as somebody who had something um, good to say about how young Japanese people should be educated going forward. Um, basically, he had always advocated people who think critically. I mean, you know, this is a this is a buzzword for us today, right, Car Carla? You know, I mean, we're supposed to create people or help <laughs> create people who, as educators, who can think for themselves and who can think critically. This has always been his thing. And um, his texts for children, um, including History of Fire, reflect this. They're not um, – what's interesting about these books is that they do not say, here's some knowledge and you need to remember it and you will be tested on it later, right? I mean, this is the the mindset that he's arguing against. Uh, did you have any qu particular questions about the history of fire? Because well, that, that, it's a pretty fun one. Uh, could you just maybe describe yeah. it a little bit for listeners? Because it's amazing. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's a pretty cool book. Um, and actually, it's it's not too hard. I was impressed, you know, because um, the guy is um, a consummate writer and not necessarily um, always the easiest to read. Um, but he did he made an effort in this book to speak to a younger audience. Um, he emphasizes that it should be read out loud and shared with other people in the family. And basically, it's this sort of loose collection of um, cultural stories about the uses of fire and light and heat in Japanese culture. So he talks about the transition, for example, from uses, use of torches as lamps to um, the use of oil lamps, right? Um, the one that I talk about in... Um, in the chapter is a particularly interesting one. He takes an, uh, a bit from a very, an old text. I can't remember which text, but um, an old um, uh, folktale, which describes how a, um, a hunter is hunting um, and how he uses a wooden uh, uses a pine torch and attaches it to his saddle and that this was a common practice and so forth. He then manages to use this old tale as a way of speculating about um, pre-modern hunting practices <laughs> and, you know, sort of what they mean to us today. I mean, there's always this, you know, addressing the reader and say, don't you think this is interesting? Don't you think we can think about how, um, this practice um, actually looked like in person and how this sort of um, 
affected how you would hunt for wild boar and, you know, and uh, how this changed over the years and that we ourselves have been privy to various different kinds of uh, fire technologies and so forth. So I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting and um, unusual um, way of talking with the child reader about um, raw research, basically folk research in a way that is not condescending and does not present cultural knowledge as sort of a fait accompli, something, you know, that you should know and um, learn about to be better Japanese citizens. That's right. And for him here, um, as you, I think, as you say it so beautifully in, in the book, education becomes again a process of self-discovery. So it's mm-hmm. again this sort of discovery mm-hmm. of the self and this open-endedness and, you know, history of fire, which... It's right. just awesome. Yes, so, and what's your own relationship to it, right? Exactly. And so, again, like we saw in the first body chapter of the book, the reader becomes part of the story, right? There's That's a, right. A dialogue. There's a sort of, rather right. than a, you know, a first person, I and you. I'm the expert, sandwich. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's also a conclusion, and I won't ask you to talk to me about <laughs> it, but I just, I need to mention, as you can imagine for listeners, yes. that the yes. conclusion ends with Yanagita on a kind of, this is your life TV show yes, in Japan. Yes, it's it's yes. actually called I Hear a Bell Tolls, which I know it's a little bit hemming. Uplifting. I know a little Hemingway esque. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know, but funereal, but but yes. yeah, Hear a Bell Tolls. So he's on this yes. TV show. This this is your life TV show. But the conclusion also comes back to the general theme of translation, and again argues here, and and I think in a way that really brings everything together that reading Yanagita's works as translations transforms how we understand them. And as you put it here, they become a counter narrative on Japanese modernity. So again, just reminding us that this is about his work. It's about translation, but it's also about um, a very particular engagement and a very important engagement with Japan, with modernity, with uh, notions of the nation. And of course, I I borrowed a page from Walter Benjamin to uh, um, title the conclusion right the afterlife of folk studies right i couldn't resist (laughs) (laughs) so like there's a million things that we could talk about um about the book it's a really wonderful study but of course we're at the end of the hour um given that though is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners especially um for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers Sure. Um, well, I have a very pretty cover to my book, <laughs> um, and I, I really wanted to talk about that just briefly. Um, the image that I chose and found years ago, this this was the one thing I was certain about with the book. I said, I, once I saw it, I was like, okay, I have to have it. Um, it is actually has nothing to do with Yanagida. It is um, the frontispiece to um, the novel um, the Broken Commandment, Hakai, 1906, written by a um, colleague and, and sometime friend of Yanagida's, Shimazaki Tosan, very famous novel from that period. Um, and uh, the artist is Kaburagi Kiyokata, and I had a heck of a time trying to get a decent copy of it because the original sketch has been destroyed. Um, but in any case, it pictures a man in um, kimono uh, from the back looking at uh, workers working in a rice field and once I, and he is clearly not a worker, right? So he's standing there observing these country folk um, working in the field and uh, you don't really know what he's thinking, but he looks thoughtful and you can, you're looking in the same direction that he's looking. And I thought, wow, that really, even though in the context of the novel, it means something quite different. Um, there is this sense of distance and aloneness and exile, and but interest and uh, at the same time a desire to be connected that I feel expresses Yanagida's position as translator very well. Absolutely. And there's also a really nice... Um picture of his hands there it gives you the sense of work to be done yes yes absolutely yeah he's sort of clasping his hands behind his back and you get the sense that he's going to be using those hands (laughs) yes so Malik, now that the book is out, and congratulations again, I think it's thank you. That, um, I, it's I think it's a fabulous book in lots of different ways and for lots of different reasons. What's next for you? Um, what are you working on now, and what projects are inspiring you? 
Well, I am I am raring to go. Um, after my long affair with Yanagita, it's time to move on. And um, although, of course, I have taken um, a number of hints from the work, as I mentioned with the dialectology chapter, uh, you know, a new view of literary language and its connection to national language, um, and also his work on children, actually. So it's not snails. It's children <laughs> that, that I'm sort of moving on toward. Um, I also figure, you know, this is my going to be my second book, and I can do what the, whatever the heck I want, and I'm going to do it the way I want. That's right. Um, yeah, so that's that's the plan. Um, the topic is um, I take my um, <clears throat> perspective title from um, Paul Hazard, um, the French comparatist, and I'm going big. Um, or I'm going home. It's um, uh, the World Republic of Childhood, which I borrowed the, the term, I, the phrase I'm borrowing from Hazard. And um, it's uh, translation and children's literature, uh, 1870 to 1930. And I'll be incorporating um, children's texts uh, from Japan, Germany, um, and uh, Anglo-America. And hopefully, you know, incorporating some other traditions as well to the extent that I am able. Um, the point being that I see this very, um, there is this strong drive toward the national during this period, right? And you can see this in Yanagida's work. But what I also saw there was that you can't do that without addressing the international, without the process of translation, both in a literal and a figurative sense. And um, I saw that children's literature in particular, this is also something I saw in my um, work on the modern Murasaki, the anthology I co-edited with Rebecca Copeland, um, that children's literature really traveled around in this period, um, even though uh, once it got to where it was going, it just became part of the the national tradition. So I'm sort of interested in looking at, well, how does the world become part of the national? And how does that look in the context of children's literature, which perhaps travels more um, avidly, and without regard for uh, borders and rules uh, than does adult literature. So that's um, actually what I'm currently working on um, on my sabbatical here in Japan. I just spent two months in Munich uh, at a wonderful place um, in uh, called the the Book Castle, mm. and yes, it's um, um, it's the International Youth Library in Munich. If you care to look it up, um, researching um, German sources from the period and. Um, while I'm here in Japan, I'm going to focus on Meiji, Meiji and Taisho period um, texts. And I'm really trying to concentrate on not <laughs> reading anything else except for Japanese stuff. But it's it's very hard. But I'm really enjoying um, working in this new direction and sort of um, applying what, I, what I've learned um, so far over my career to these new texts. Well, this sounds like another fantastic project. So best of luck um, with this Thank project. You. Enjoy the sabbatical. If you do come across any children's stories that involve snails, I'm just saying I, I will certainly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and thank you, Malik. It really has been a pleasure. Um, and it was a pleasure to read the book as well. Well, thank you. And I'll see you back at the farm. Absolutely. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.